My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. I always forget where I am, even though it's my business. Um, I have with me a wonderful guest, and her name is Christy Hall. Hello, Christy. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Very psyched to have you here as well. And let me tell everybody why. Okay, ready? Brace yourself for Christy Hall's bio. She is a playwright and screenwriter recently recognized as one of Variety's 10 screenwriters, well, if I could say right, 10 screenwriters to watch of 2018. She's also the recipient of the 2018-2019 Woodward Newman Drama Award for Playwriting. And Christy's script, Daddio, was top five of 76 scripts on the blacklist in 2017. And this year, her spec script, Get Home Safe, was top three on the blacklist. My God. And that means that now Daddio is in development. It currently has Daisy Ridley from The Force Awakens attached to Star. And Christy also has co-created a Netflix original with Jonathan Entwistle called I Am Not Okay With This, which will be out late 2019 or early 2020. So there's so many things brewing for you. Oh my God. You are hired. You get 10% of everything I make. All you right. just sold my whole life story. That's I fine. love it. Everybody Perfectly. heard that. Okay. <laughs> no problem. No problem. No, um, Christy, congrats. Okay, let's, let's, we're going to go back to the beginning for a little bit, okay? Because I'm very, very interested in your playwriting background. So talk to me about being a playwright, some of the projects that you did, and then how you ended up sort of in the Hollywood world. Let's start with the playwriting part. Uh, yeah, I would say that, um, um, first of all, what I would say is that all of you who want to write screenplays and love movies and television and all the things, um, what I would say very respectfully is um, uh, movies and television would not exist if it were not for the craft of live theater. Um, that long ago, centuries ago, actually, um, uh, well, it, it, it's one of our more um, natural impulses. You know, we're very uh, social creatures. So one of our more natural impulses is to tell each other stories in order to understand, in order to um, pass down cautionary tales, whatever it is. So there's probably different measures of storytelling that happened in our more primal states as like human beings. Um, but when it became a little more, um, uh, uh, just when it became a little more like the idea of, uh, sitting down and being an audience actually watching something that had been rehearsed, um, that happened with the Greeks. And it was actually your civic duty to go and see live theater. Um, and uh, it, 
that is the incredible art form that has existed throughout the centuries that has led to screenwriting, to television writing, but it all started with live theater. And for me personally, I feel like a lot of people who are really touched um, by this incredible medium that is theater, a lot of times it starts uh, when you're in high school, very naturally. You try out for the school play, or you're the stage manager of the school play, or you help with props or something. But a lot of times in high school, you have an opportunity to engage with this incredible centuries-old art form called live theater that eventually led to cinema. And um, most people who become what I call theater kids, I'm a theater kid. I'm, I'm a, a full-blown theater, theater kid. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you're either a theater kid or you're not, and there's no in between. And I, uh, theater, I grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma, about 2000 people, and I didn't have a lot of access to art and to those conversations and to a a bigger artistic collective and community. And, um, I fell in love with theater. And we only did um, a school play that was directed by my high school English teacher. We didn't even have a theater department. What, what play was it? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, there, it, it was a it was a like I was in like three shows like in high school. I can't even remember what they were. They weren't anything. They weren't classics necessarily. They were I don't even remember the names of them. <laughs> But I, uh, but I was reading the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading um, Shakespeare, and I was reading from the Greeks, and um, I kind of just started falling in love with it. I fell in love with Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill um, and Edward Albee, and um, I started write, uh, reading a little bit on the side by myself outside of class, and... Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a theater kid. And so, uh, long story short, I, um, the more that I performed theater and the more that I read plays, the more I realized that, uh, I, I mean, I've written my whole life. Um, it started out with poetry and short stories, but, um, it very naturally started becoming dialogue and monologues and things because it's what I was drawn to. And it's an interesting thing, uh, with theater kids that, and even people, uh, those of you who, who maybe just fell in love with movies and now you want to be screenwriters, there's a really incredible exchange that happens when a very specific art form, it changes your life and in some ways saves your life. Um, I really am a believer that art saves lives as much as medicine save li- saves lives. Um, so I think those of us who are here and those of us who want to learn and those of us who want to participate in this conversation, most likely it's because this art form at some point saved your life and now that you um, seek to return the favor. And I do believe that. And I think that that's important. And I think that if uh, you're you're seeking to give back to something that gave so much to you, and I think that that's the best way to lead into this art form. Um, because if you are pressing into this art form out of ego or out of uh, telling someone that they were wrong about you and they didn't believe in you, if, if it's about getting back at someone or about self-elevation or anything, I think that that's not where the best creation and creativity comes from. 
I think that what really comes to seeking to give back, to pay it forward in a lot of ways, that's where the magic can really happen. So for me personally, theater saved my life. Um, so I'm seeking to return the favor and I just started writing and I just kept writing and I never stopped. When when was your first produced play? Uh, yeah. So my first produced play, a little play called yours Isabel, uh, that opened in Washington DC and, um, was very well received and it was terrifying and exhilarating and wonderful. And it did so well that I took the play and I brought it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in, in Scotland. And it was very well received there as well. And that's when I really started to realize, like, I, I, I want to do this and I love this. And uh, Yours, Isabel, um, is a World War II love letter play um, that really dissects not only gender politics, but just what it means to be a human and our very small myopic perspectives that a lot of times are given to us and what does that mean when you want to change but you don't know how and um yeah that play is really what made me understand that I was no longer um uh I I say I say this a lot to people that you're an amateur until you're suddenly a professional and that's really true you're an amateur you're an amateur you keep writing 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 and at some point you look around and go oh i'm a professional all of a sudden because people are paying me to do the thing right. that i would have been doing anyway and yours isabel was that moment where i realized like oh i'm suddenly a professional and i don't really quite know when that happened was it a one act play or was it uh, a- uh it's an intermissionless uh full-length play which is becoming more and more the so, norm so 90 minutes yeah n- exactly and even in the musical theater world uh, most of my stuff tends to be intermissionless but it's still full length um so when you go well actually you know what i'm gonna go to your musicals for a second you also wrote two musicals yes i was excited about that you know being a recovering theater kid and a recovering a musical theater kid um what was it that made you go you know what i've i've you know i i write these you know i write very important plays but i also want to write important musicals what made you decide to put music to it uh yeah i i'm not I'm not musically gifted at all. I don't sing or I don't, I mean, I sort of have attempted to play the ukulele when no one's around (laughs) and it's kind of my little friend, but, um, but I'm not musically gifted, um, in that way, but I, but I have such a reverence for, for that art form. Um, and I also love musical theater. So, um, for me personally, um, uh, I remember I saw Tick, Tick, Boom um, with a friend. And uh, after the performance was over, um, I was very curious uh, about it um, because, um, because it's Jonathan Larson's music who wrote Rent. And, but then it said book by David Auburn. And David Auburn wrote a beautiful play called Proof that I that I greatly love. Proof is great. So I was confused because it, it was like the Jonathan Larson musical Tick, Tick, Boom. And then it was like book by David Auburn. And I remember asking my musical theater friend, uh, what did David Auburn do? Like, I don't understand. And uh, actually to this day, I have really sweet people that will come up to me and say, oh, book by Christy Hall. Does that mean you wrote a book and they turned it's it into so a musical? Funny. They have no idea what right. a libretto is, and right. that's okay. But in that moment, same thing. I was a full-blown theater kid, 
but I knew nothing about musicals. And I asked someone, I know David Auburn from Proof. What did he do on Tick, Tick, Boom? And they were like, oh, he... He like, wrote the story yeah, yeah, like that he, you're watching. He wrote the dialogue and he created the characters and he created this little house for all these beautiful songs to exist. And I literally grabbed my friend's arm fiercely and I looked them in the eye and I said, I want to do that. <laughs> because I really love musicals that have a really robust and healthy libretto. I love Cabaret, for example, mm-hmm. that the music... Uh, springs forward in a very organic way that it actually exists within the context of of reality, which I love. Um, it doesn't always have to be that way for me necessarily, but I do. I love Fiddler on the Roof, or I love I, I love musicals that have scenes, strong books. Yeah, actual scenes because you know when you learn about musical theater, typically it's three to five pages, then a song. Three to five pages, and then a song. And for me, I'm like, well, let's say these characters have more to say to each other. Who's to say that they don't talk to each other for seven to ten pages and then there's a song? Um, and that is why I've really been very excited in, in musicals and in, and in theater to flirt with structure and to, to, to push back to say, well, why, why does it have to be that way? Why can't it be this? Um, most of my plays, for example, are one gigantic scene um, that uh, Woodward Newman Prize that I won is for a play called To Quiet the Quiet, and it literally is a 90-minute scene. It never stops. It's one whole continuous conversation. But within that scene, you're going to have beats, right? Beats that, sure. that you know take you to different parts that basically are moving the story emotionally, right? Absolutely. So... Let's say that somebody goes, no, I'm going to, it's one room, it's one scene, it's two people, that's my play. Um, how, uh, is, there, is there a way to suggest that at a certain point, even if it's by feel, that they're moving story? And, and how can people do that? Oh, absolutely. Like there has to be a, a rise um, in conflict I typically, I almost feel like any story needs to build to a point of impasse where the audience is led to believe that uh, the characters have reached a point of no return and and we get to have the satisfaction of watching them push forward. Um, I almost, I feel like any medium should always flirt with that, that every, I think any writer, any aspiring writer should always ask themselves, what, what is the point of impasse? What is the point of no return? What is the point of coming to a dead end? Where, where do I guide them to that place that it feels like all is lost? And then where, where does that redemption or for lack of a better word, like salvation come from? I feel like those are the stories that, that guide, that, that are so, uh, I think the human heart just so longs like to, um, I don't know, like we've all had our own, uh, we've all experienced that in our own lives. I mean, it's a day-to-day thing. Uh, if not, at least, I mean, we always come to those roadblocks, right? So I feel like your job as a writer is to service that and honor that by constantly bringing your character. So like, even if you put two people in one room, talking to each other. For example, Daddio, the beautiful Daisy Ridley, is going to play a girl in the backseat of a cab uh, in, a, in a film of mine that is basically one giant conversation in a taxi cab. Mm. And, and my job is to allow the rise and fall of dramatic tension and that, that is leading upward toward what we are talking about, that, um, that, 
that moment of we're not quite sure if they can get through that uh, that dead end. Um, you must be very good at sort of dripping out information because if you if you give it all away up front and you've got forty five more minutes in a in a taxi cab or an hour more in that room in that play, it, it's it's over. So what do you start with usually? Like what is your entrance point? for contained projects like this? Yeah, I'm very character forward. I'm very dialogue forward. And what I would encourage, um, what I would encourage anyone listening is to, to really decide that your audience is smart. Mm -hmm. I think that that's where we, uh, that's where you take a left turn and you, and you go to, uh, you know, I, I think that most projects get derailed when you feel the need to spoon feed, to say it all up front. Um, don't be afraid. Uh, don't worry that people won't understand um, the story you're trying to tell. I think just I think I think the best way forward is assume that your audience is really smart. Assume that your audience throughout their entire life has been consuming stories, all measures of stories their entire life, and is actually a lot more ahead of you than you give them credit for. So I actually think the more you withhold information and the more you very thoughtfully give that information, the more satisfying it is to the viewer and the more indicative and reflective it is of actual human experience. Like none of us got to just show up and be given like a... a, a guide, you know, a, a book that just explains this is exactly what's going on. This is exactly the metaphor of your life. <laughs> this is exactly the, the the political context you're living in. Like it's like it takes. There's nuance to it. So I'd say the more you can really withhold information, the more you can really withhold reveal. It's not about trickery. It's and about you know, I don't know, like you know, really you know, bedazzled storytelling. It really is about just honoring what it means to be a human living just regular human life. Like all of us probably every day experience some form of a plot twist in the story of our own life. So give us the satisfaction of enjoying that on screen or on stage or whatever medium that you're, that you're working in. Can, can I ask for, this is, this is, you know, I, I hate it when like students will be like, could you give me an example? And I feel like it's such a gotcha moment. Right. But I am, I'm going to ask you to maybe reach into some of your more contained projects and tell me if you, if you can, how did you get that plot twist across without somebody just conveying information? So for example, if somebody had like, let's say one character is making a discovery about somebody else or, you know, anger is starting or something is changing without someone saying, hey, you know what I did? Here's what I did to make you angry. Like, how did you do that? Was there an event that happened? Like in a very specific project? Yeah, so either in Daddy-O in the cab or in this two-person play, right? And I keep saying two-person. I don't know if it's two people. It's two people in a room, right? Yeah. Yes, and scene. So, you know... People don't always just Q and A, right? Here's here's the question, here's the answer, right? They're not always listening to each other, and you you're not just saying here's this thing I'm telling you, and then somebody's reacting, and that's heightening the story. The plot actually twisted. How did a plot twist without the use of dialogue or without 
Does, does that make sense? Yeah, that actually, that very much makes sense. Um, uh, well, I'll start with the broad strokes to say that um, when you're writing, always ask yourself, what is the metaphorical context of what I'm trying to say? Um, I think even if you're writing something that's incredibly straightforward and very linear, um, I I think that every story should have a thematic, grander, metaphorical reason to exist. So constantly ask yourself, like, why now? Why am I telling this story now? Like, why what, why does this con- like concept and context matter? Um, and then I would also say subtext within that is crucial. So you can have incredible reveals between characters where they're saying everything that they want to say without even saying it. And uh, for me, I think the greatest reveals are where you really think very carefully about when do we allow the audience to get ahead of a character? When do we allow characters to be ahead of the audience? Um, And it doesn't always have to happen through dialogue. I mean, sometimes you can very playfully tease the audience into believing one thing and then we watch the character uh, unveil something else or reversely where we have a scene where the audience understands uh, the lie that the character has been told, the character doesn't understand it and then we get to enjoy that lie. Like, It really depends on what you want to... So for example, to quiet the quiet, for, for example... When I wrote that play, I knew the ultimate reveal. Like, I I knew where... I wrote the last scene first, and then I started at the beginning. Cool. Because then I got to be the master of manipulation, which is an incredible privilege as a writer to get to decide what information do I parcel out at which time in order to give the most satisfying journey for the audience member. It is so incredible. There's an incredible exchange of energy that happens like when you're telling a story. So for me, I wrote the last scene first because I was like, this is where we're going. This is the reveal. This is how it ends. And then I started from the beginning. But because I knew where it was going, I could be ahead of the audience the entire time and I could let them believe they were ahead of me by parceling out information that they didn't quite understand and then they got to understand at the very end that I was ahead of them the whole time. I love that answer. Thank you so much. <laughs> I know, I know I kind of sort of stuck it to you there. I, prom- I promised to be easier No, you're good. No, you're good. You know your stuff. You know your stuff. <laughs> With all respect, I, I feel like I'm in a master class here just sitting here talking to you. <laughs> I know, I can't wait to see some of this stuff now. I really, really can't. Um, tell me about I Am Not Okay With This, the Netflix original. Uh, how many parts is it going to be? How many? How many? Oh, guys, I'm so excited for you to pay attention to this one. So Jonathan Entwistle was uh, part of the incredible brain trust that brought forward um, End of the Effing World Mm -hmm. on Netflix. Um, Really beautiful. Uh, He's from Great Britain. He's just a a beautiful storyteller, beautiful director, beautiful mind. Um, And uh, um, it is... Uh, End of the Effing World was inspired by a graphic novel um, 
uh, by an incredible creative. Uh, his name is uh, Charles Forsman um, or Chuck. And he also wrote a, another graphic novel called I'm Not Okay With This. So it's an incredible uh, piece of um, property right now in that we have uh, part of the brain trust from End of the Effing World, Jonathan at Whistle. He's going to direct every episode. Um, we are co-creators on this. We're both EPs on this. We're both working very closely. We're both running the room. Um uh, so, th- so we have that. Then the other piece of the pie is that the producers of Stranger Things have um, are our collaborators on it, and then um, the ultimate platform that it's going to be released on is on Netflix. So I just I I feel like the the bell the ball for <laughs> yeah. sure. You must uh, wake up and go. I'm in a really good dream. Right you now. know, it's incredible. So I, I'm really again like. Um, what we do is an honor and a privilege. Um, but I want to say to anyone listening, I, I wrote for a long time with, with very little, um, uh, it took a long time to get here. Um, most of what I've written daddio, even it's so funny. I wrote daddio in my pajamas in an apartment in New York city that I could barely afford. And I was doing a lot of side hustles and I would go home and I would write this little, what I thought was a little two-hander stage play called Daddio. And, um, it, it, again, you're, you are, uh, again, that idea of that you, that you're not a professional until you just suddenly are. And, but those, that time before that moment happens is, really frustrating and um it takes a lot of a lot of faith and it takes a lot of resilience and um so i i definitely don't want to sit here and pretend like you know we always hear those stories of like i was just you know you hear all these incredible hollywood stories especially for actors of like i was sitting at a soda fountain and steven spielberg walked in and said that girl she should star in my movie Um, But I want to say for writers, honestly, it should always be about the work and it should always be about the love and joy of the work. Not to say that sometimes the joy is stripped of you because work is still work, but, um, but like, I, I definitely want to just flag that for, for a moment and that like, yes, I'm developing something for Netflix. Yes. Daisy Ridley is going to be in my movie. Like, yes, all these incredible, wonderful things are happening, but that's really just been in the last 12 to 14 months of my life. And I would say for well over the last decade, if not longer, uh, I've been manifesting in the shadows and in the darkness, believing that I was doing something that mattered, but I didn't, uh, it, it, it's, it takes time. Art takes time and art is hard. And I wish that I could sit here and tell you it's going to be easy Um, but I respect anyone listening. I respect you enough to not tell you a lie that art is hard and it takes time, but simultaneously art matters. Again, let's go back to that idea that at some point it saved your life and now you're seeking to return the favor. So in that it matters and because it's hard, and because it takes time and because it takes a lot of work ethic and a lot of imagination and a lot of resiliency, I think that's the point. I think that's where the best stories come from. Um, yeah, so 
Yeah, I think that's that's really inspiring for so many people who are listening because the wait, the amount of time is often the hardest thing that I hear. You know, the um, gosh, I, you know, it was an almost and then it wasn't. And how many more years of this? Or I'm only going to give myself another year. Or, um, you know, I flew out here to L.A. I've got to make it in six months. And, you know, it's it's like you said, it takes a long time for a lot of people, at least from my experience as a teacher watching my students and clients. Um, you know, so many of the people that I- I'm having on the show recently that are successful for people who have been listening to the podcast since 2007, you can go back in time. There were a couple of people who were just students at that time and they're just getting their break now. So I'm glad that you said that. I want to know about... Um, Playwriting versus uh, screenwriting. Now, I, I know that Daddy-O is contained and was meant as a play, um, but now that you're doing um, I Am Not Okay With This, which is meant as a TV show, and uh, half hour or one hour? Half hour. Half hour and how many? Like six to uh, Yeah, so there'll be eight episodes okay. uh, under half hour. So that is, you know, okay, now you have to sort of fit a certain amount of story into a half an hour. I would imagine, you know, you've, you've, you're, it's not just one scene, right? So, um, so what, uh, what are you bringing in that you learn from, from playwriting or what is very different from playwriting that you're actually learning on the job? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, uh, I think playwriting was a really incredible training ground um, for um, really zoning in on the craft. So, for example, in playwriting, so uh, I've had f- a few plays and musicals produced all over the country. One of my musicals was translated into Japanese and like ran in Tokyo and like, um, but the process of plays is you write something and then you workshop it and then you listen to it and you rewrite it and then you do readings of it and you rewrite it and then you get, you know, a couple of productions and you rewrite it again and then you have a world premiere and then you, you're there for eight hours a day listening to rehearsals, working with the director and the actors and, and you're rewriting, rewriting. So like by the time people really see it, you have like, you have participated in this incredible, like collaborative, like, brain trust of what it means to like nurture the words you have actors asking you like why am I saying this and you have a director being like actually in the third act it kind of dips like can we what is the dramatic impulse to do that thing like you are constantly being challenged by this incredible team around you and then also plays and musicals take time like typically it can take literally anywhere from two to ten years to foot fully develop a play or a musical where it can actually be ready for like a regional run that then lands you off broadway or on broadway so the manifestation of theater the the culture of theater has like really dedicated itself to that this is a gestation period that is a collaborative art form that takes a long time and your job is to show up every day and actively listen what I can say is that a lot of times I, um, a lot of the most celebrated screenwriters actually come from the playwriting background, I think for that reason, because the training ground is so exquisite. What I will say for people who, and there's no, there's no right or wrong, but I will say a lot of times screenwriting is you write something and you, and it get, let's say it gets sold. Well, by the time it gets rewritten and rewritten and ends up on screen, 
you, your words may have never even made the cut necessarily. Maybe your intention or your idea for a scene made the cut, but like you didn't get to participate in the rewriting a lot of the time. So what I would say about any of you who are interested in screenwriting, if there's anything around you, if there is a theater around you, if there's any opportunity at all to engage, like writing a one act and engaging in that way, like it is so informative because I will say theater demands that you're as a playwright playwrights are really um they say that playwright is king or i like to say queen playwright (laughs) is king or queen right in the theater world and your job is to work very closely with the director with the actors with the producers to fully realize your ultimate vision film is a little different in that typically you write something and then it is the the filmmaker's job to fully realize their vision and your words may or may not necessarily be honored in that process. And I say this with all respect, that's just what the mediums are. And then TV, you get to be queen again. So it's incredible. I will say this Netflix thing, no, I'll, I'll take the queen card. <laughs> uh, no, it's incredible. Now I'm in a world that the words matter again. So... Uh, I will say doing television, I think there's an incredible, very natural exchange between being a playwright and moving into television and that it's very natural for me to own the fact that I know who these characters are. I know what they would and would not say. I know what they're wearing. I know what their house looks like, like, cause I'm used to being part of the, the, the creative artistic process in theater. So to switch over to that in the, in the television world where my opinion matters um, that's really satisfying. Like that's that feels like a really very equal exchange of goods. Film is very interesting in that, but I will say, I will say categorically, anyone that has partnered with me on the film side, they've invited me into the context of the conversations. Um, in a lot of my per- projects, I've been invited to be a producer, which I'm grateful for because I'm now invited to the table in a way that typically, as a writer, you're not necessarily so. I would just say, like, I do think film writing, uh, screenwriting can be a little uh, lonely. And I do think that um, any opportunity you have to, I would say, like, I, um, when people read my work, they're like, your dialogue is so spot on. And I'm like, my dialogue is there because I have sat in rooms for hours listening to actors attempt to tackle the words that I've asked them to say. And you can hear it. You can hear them wrestling with it. You can hear it when the cadence of it is hard to say. If it's a mouthful for them, if it's hard for them to get out, if they trip on the language, my job is to fix it. And I will say, like, theater has made me f- made me be faster in knowing what dialogue uh, will work and what will not um, because, because in a way they're, it, they're trying it all out in your brain now, right? You yeah, can, exactly. Like, there's a little stage reading going on. All those hours of rehearsal sure. are now in my brain. So now when I sit down to write a movie or, or an episode of I'm not okay with this, that brain trust is still there waiting for me. And I will say that there's value to that. So I, w- I and again, live theater is the grandmother of screenwriting and of television. Like that is where it all came from. So if, if you don't know anything about that history or that process, like I actually think it's very, it could nothing but be additive to that. Well, that's actually the question I want to ask you is, um, if you were going to give somebody like a little homework list 
of plays that they should watch or read, what would what are some that come off the top of your head? You had mentioned some playwrights before, but are there any particular plays that you think might be a great education for people? Yeah, I actually think that's a brilliant question, and I think it's really important. Um, yeah, uh, know where your medium even comes from, and I would say, uh, r- like, read things like, um, like, read from Susan Laurie Parks, for example, read Top Dog, Underdog. Like, read that play and allow it to actually blow your mind and allow yourself to feel unlike you've ever felt before as you're reading it and allow yourself to be so deliciously surprised by what she didn't tell you until she decided to tell you. (laughs) That is an incredible, incredible mind and storyteller. Um, I would say read Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee. Um, Again, the withholding of information, the allowance to... uh, He allows his characters to be absurd in their endeavors and in their conversations, and he allows his humor to be really dark but highly witty and strange and... That play is just incredible. Um, I would say in terms of dialogue, always read from Mamet. I would say, um, uh, I don't know, like, know your playwrights. Even read an old Greek tragedy. Like, um, read Medea, you know, like, read Oedipus. Like, um uh, you know, read, I mean, Shakespeare, like, uh, um, I don't know, like there's, there's just so much, there's, there's, there's such a rich history that I think a lot of times is ignored, but like, uh, again, August Osage County, for example, I read the play before I saw it and I could not put it down and it just, I I felt sick to my stomach reading the whole thing, but in the best way because I just was so with every single character. And I will say that the turns of that, whether you've seen the movie or not, go read the play, the actual stage play where the movie came from. If you like the movie Closer, go read the stage play that that came from. If you like the movie Doubt, go read the stage play that that came from. In fact, Doubt is one of the most incredible theatrical experiences I've ever had. I was at the Amundsen Theater here in Los Angeles, and I saw Cherry Jones play that role. Wow. And and that was an intermissionless, just like roller coaster of a ride. And when it ended, I was so dumbfounded and I it's like I my doubt came from two places that every single scene I constantly changed my opinion and then I was left with just this really ambiguous feeling of nothingness and just doubt right (laughs) which was the point right (laughs) um so I would just say like if there is there any movie that you love that you know that very famously came from a play go back to the source material and I I could say that would nothing but be additive to your endeavor of creating really good work. I would add, if there's a movie from a play that you didn't love, go see the play. Because 
not all movie adaptions from plays work. They just don't. That's and that's fair. I, they were never meant to be played in that medium yeah, anyway. Yeah, and it's sort of, it, it dulls the story. So in a way, give it a second chance. Go see the theater. Go, go, see, go see it in a theater so you understand what the how it really met its original intentions because there are some some movies I watch where I just want to like stand up and go hey look it's really way better than this guys you know which is probably how a lot of people feel when they see novel adaptations yeah that, it's very that true love, it's very know? similar to novel adaptations yeah, where you're like no but it's, sure. it's it's so much better I swear I swear to God <laughs> Chrissy this has been wonderful I want to thank you so much what are you working can you say what you're working on next um, I mean you've got all these things in development right now but are you writing a new passion project? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually involved in a few things. So, uh, so currently I'm doing, I'm not okay with this. Um, Daddio, uh, hopefully will be going into production very soon. I can't give many specifics on that, but, um, other than that, I'm actually doing, uh, this beautiful Norwegian film called Thelma is I'm doing the, um, English, um, English language adaptation um, of Thelma with uh, the I, Tanya and Lars and the Real Girl uh, director, uh, Craig Gillespie, who's just cool. an incredible mind. What I really like about Craig is that, um, uh, with all respect, he just was like, I don't necessarily want to take a Norwegian film and put it into English and make the same film because that film already exists, just in a different language. So what's been really fun about working with him is how do we honor the DNA of the original movie? And then how do we reimagine the movie into like, not just the English language version, but how do we create a new version that fans of the original film will love, but then also, um, again, just kind of how do we just continue the story in our own clever ways? So that's been just so wonderful. Um, uh, and then, yeah, yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a couple other projects that I, I actually can't. It's so funny that I actually can't really ultimately uh, speak of. And I'm still, I'm still flirting in the theater space. So, if any of you are uh, around New York or in the London area, keep an eye on my musicals and my plays, particularly yeah. my musical, a home the musical um, uh, composer and lyricist Scott Allen. Um, there's a, a hopeful. Uh, West End run in the future and then also my musical Trails there's a hopeful off-Broadway run as well um, so keep an eye on that and I, I'll be in New York in August actually people who are listening I'll be we in should North, hang out we should get August. brunch yes so I'll be teaching <laughs> go a, see theater uh, yeah I'm going to be teaching a rewrite class just letting New York people know um, up front maybe by the time that this comes out it'll be on the website you can check it out okay so in August but then yes I want to go see one of your plays yeah, that would be great okay that would make me really happy all right Cool. So you're sort of bi-coastal right now. You're a New York and LA person, or or are you just here for a short amount of time? Or uh, yeah, um, I yeah, I kind of am starting to exist in both cities. So you know you're important. When oh, you there stop. You, you stop. <laughs> <laughs> so Christy Hall, um, check out all of these projects. Um, also, you have a website. Should I do. Go to it? Yeah, ChristyHall.com, just to keep an eye on what I'm up to and. 
yeah, and again, I'm a huge believer in and paying it forward. So um, if any of you ever end up at a, a anything of mine and I'm there, like please come and say hi. It would mean a lot. Excellent, excellent. And I want to remind everybody to go to onthepage.tv. We've got the classes here, of course, the six week first draft class um, that is starting April 27th, running through June 1st. It is you know for the in person people, it is three hours of getting your script from premise into pages. And as you know, we've started a new six-week online slash video in-person class with me. That is two hours, 9.30 to 11.30 Pacific time. So that should work for East Coasters and Europeans. Um, So check that out as well, because it'll be so exciting to be able to teach this to everybody, not just to LA people. Thanks again to Christy Hall. Thanks to all of you for listening and have a good writing week. Thank you.